0: Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan and welcome along to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now this week we sit down with a true legend of Australian motorsport. He's a guy that made it all the way to Formula One. He won the Bathurst 1000 six times, three times with his own team. He piloted a solar car across the country and found long lost artefacts in the Aussie Outback. There's nothing that this guy can't do. Of course, it's the one and only Larry Perkins. In the first part of our chat, we cover his time in Europe trying to make it to Formula 1, about racing for Bernie Eccleston, and how an ice skater ended his oval track racing career before it even began. Plus, we touch on his sudden decision to retire from the cockpit for good at Bathurst in 2003. Stay tuned for part two where we ask him your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions We talk about his decision to start his own touring car team and his three Bathurst wins under his own banner. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Part one of Larry Perkins on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Larry Perkins, we have been asked by so many people to drag you onto the V8 Sleuth podcast. We have finally done it. Thanks for taking some time with us today. This could go anywhere, mate. This could be, this could be a bit of anything and everything. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready, no problem.
0: Oh, Is there anything off-limits today? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I would have expected nothing less. Because at V8 Sleuth LP, we are right into the histories of the old race cars, and obviously your team built so many over the years. The one we want to ask about and our fans want to know about right now, because it's a bit um, timely, is how's the restoration going of the 1993 Bathurst-winning VP Commodore?
1: Yeah, my favourite, uh, car, uh, I suppose. The first one that we built, uh, pole position and won the race and had a Holden engine, all good things about it. Um, how's it going? Well, um, Jack's been on it for me. We've had it a few years now, but the body is totally finished, uh, and painted, uh, painted as, it, as we had it on, uh, on the grid, obviously, in 1993. The engine's are in, in bits. That's in my corner. I've got the crankshaft out.
0: and So that's your job? Yeah, He's the body man, job. you're yeah. the motor man? Yeah, I
1: said to Jack, I'm going to do that. Uh, it's in pretty good shape, actually, the engine, so it's, uh, we don't have to do a lot to it. But uh, the gearbox is done, I think, Jack got that done, one of our old... Um, Uh, Mechanics, Barry Abbottmeyer he he comes in to do those parts for us and the diff and all that so he's got all the bits I believe Uh, and are
0: these the bits from are they the exact engine, the exact gearbox? The
1: the exact engine correct uh, uh, engine number and the correct gearbox number it's all the right stuff Uh, took Jack a lot of uh, tracking down but he's uh, uh, got a good network of friends and uh, people that uh, follow what he does and so he's, he's been able to source everything so when it hits the the track or the grid or the ground whatever we call it um finished it'll be exactly as it was in 1993 in uh what was it october 93 yeah
0: the painstaking levels of detail that i know he's gone to because i've been lucky enough to pop out to your workshop and have a look at it and some of the other cars there it's off the chart the level that he's been going to in terms of he's had fans sending photos i think were did you take that car back Home many years ago on the way to the Adelaide Grand Prix and fa- fans have taken photos in the boot, in the engine bay, in the interior that have actually helped you know where things were or what colour that was or that lead. Or It's amazing how innocuous photos from 27 years ago now underpin the restoration of a famous car.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of homework to get it right and once uh, we finished 93... We sold the car, uh, you know, very quickly, if I remember rightly, because you always sold your car to finance the next car, and so it was many years past before uh, Jack got it back, and it went through numerous uh, owners, and a lot of them hotted it up, uh, you know, uh, in their own way since then, and uh, I think I, I think they made it into the next model, and I, I know. Uh, um, we we've got a very good lad, Travis, um, who who's been worked for me for many years ago, but he's he's worked he's worked on it almost for a year to get the body structurally as it was. Uh he's a great fabricator and um um yeah, yeah, so that's all right, but we wanted it right. There's no point in doing a restoration that's uh just just flashy. We didn't want to just have chrome rocker covers. We wanted it as it was. And, uh, you yeah, know, to get the right gearbox and the right wheels and all those things have been a big task, yeah. A lot of people have helped.
0: What are you going to do when you finally finish the thing? There's some people would say, stick it in a corner, it's pristine, I don't want to put it near a racetrack or get a bug squashed under the front spoiler. When it's finished, is it going to go on the track or is it going to be wheeled away somewhere nice and parked in a corner?
1: Oh, no, we'd like to, uh, I said to Jack, look, I'll, I'll help as well, as long as your goal is that it's uh, original and structurally as it was, meaning it's got to be able to do another Bathurst. No point in having it half reconditioned. Mm. Uh, and so it'll be easily good enough to do uh, uh, laps on the track at some stage, of which uh, I expect to do it whether i drive or or jack will drive it doesn't matter much but uh we certainly won't be racing it at a level that where you could risk the machinery and crash it but to have it sitting uh, in a corner after all that work i think would be a bit of a waste of time so we want to show that today it still goes good uh went good uh last time i ran it it'll still go good today
0: sounds like a plan to me sounds like a plan to me we jump all over the shop with this podcast. Yes. Uh, we cover all sorts of topics. We've got our Couch Racer questions section coming up a bit later where fans have actually thrown in some questions. We had piles for you. I spent all night sifting through them <laughs> to edit them down to get to the level that we could probably get through. Uh, one of the things that I've not had the chance to talk to you about, and I know other people have, but I'm really intrigued because it probably doesn't get covered enough, is the F1 stuff of of your career. There's a first for everyone. There's a, a first Bathurst or a first Grand Prix. So, Am I right in saying your first grand prix was at the Nürburgring in 74? Yes. What a place to turn up to for your first F1 race.
1: Yes, I was um uh, very pleased to uh uh you know get there to get to the Nürburgring. I mean not only get to Formula 1 but Nürburgring uh, for anyone who's got a few miles on the clock the Nürburgring is is the ultimate Formula 1 track uh, and I'm talking about the old Nürburgring mm. and um yeah, I, I'd only been in Europe a couple of years and, uh, I teamed up, uh, Chris Amon, a New Zealand guy, the late Chris Amon. uh, he, he was starting his own team, a Cosworth based, uh, English design car and, um, uh, he was going to have two cars of which I'd drive one and, uh, I did testing at Goodwood a lot with him and, uh, we went to Nürburgring, uh, m- mid-season because that's when it all got finished and, uh, Chris, uh, uh, I think, might have drove the first session if I remember rightly, but he got cook. He had a, yeah, you know, some some uh, element, and uh, so I drove uh, the the next uh, day, or and so, and uh, ultimately though, I did crash it in the um, uh, on the track. It was uh, I went over this particular hill at the Ardenaz, and and um, it was raining on the other side of the hill, and you can't tell this, and it, I speared off and. Bang the back end of the Armco, and and we didn't have any spares. We had no spares to fix it, and so it was withdrawn. So, but I, I before that, I had got in uh, you know numerous laps at the track, and I was uh, delighted about it
0: in those days getting into formula one is that okay more talent than money back in those days but there was a bit of money flying around you did all your own deals you handled everything yourself to to, to open those doors and, and how did that door crack open did you go and have to kick it in or did someone come to you yeah. saying you're a good young fella you're going okay here come and drive my car
1: well when i when i left the farm up at the uh, or cowanji uh, uh, that in the mallee there i was a windmill mechanic and uh yeah, you know, I, I didn't uh you know, have a huge uh, academic uh, uh education. That's an understatement. And um um I wanted to go Formula One racing and um I I you know, went did my Formula Ford bit in in Australia and I was driving for Bibstool and uh, I, I hung around for a year with Harry first and, and met lots of other people as well. Um and I, I remember saying, you know, to, to Brocky, I said, look, I, I don't know why you hang around here to be king of the kids. You know, Formula One's where it's, that's where it's gone. That's and where I, the bigwigs go. I was gone. So when I got to Europe with my own Elfin Formula Ford, as in owned by Gary Cooper, the late Gary Cooper of Elfin, which he'd loaned me for that race, and I got, uh, I think, he ended up third in the world final. Um, Doors already were opening, and I had uh, uh, some people offering me free cars, etc., to drive Formula 3s, and so on. I put on uh, a good enough display to wear uh, Chris Amon. Uh, 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 He was good friends with um, uh, other people as well who knew me. David Mackay, a well known Australian journalist, was always on my case as being uh hey i'm okay to i'll be right to race formula one and so he was pushing barrows behind the scenes and he was a good friend also of chris Amon's, and i think that's probably how that particular door opened but um it opened uh really by the hard work that i know that i'd been doing uh be, you know, get on the track and display your talents uh, owners want to see drivers who can get in a car and uh put it on the front row and win a race and uh I'd been doing pretty good at that.
0: I reckon you did. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me about the pathway to the top, no matter what the euro, who the driver is, whether it's Australia or Europe, um, but more so I think when you hear about drivers going to Europe and England and doing those things, is the the sacrifices and sleeping on floors and sleeping on a couch at a mate's place and didn't have a buck to go and um, stay at a hotel at that track so they stayed in the, the truck or whatever it was. Give our listeners a bit of an idea of the, the early mid-70s there. That, was that sort of stuff going on in, in your world? Were you, What springs to mind from that whole well, type of situation?
1: Well, it, it was going on, but I didn't know there was a difference because I grew up all my life know yeah, we were poor on the farm we had no money and uh any money i had i earned myself i yeah, you know, I, I was working. I left school when I was 14. I started working then. I, you know, paid paid my mum rent to live in the farmhouse. And so you lived rough all the time. And uh, when I got to Europe, it just, yeah, you know, it was a fraction rougher. <laughs> uh, not a lot. I bought a truck. I immediately bought a truck that I could sleep in and live in because uh, that was going to be the cheapest way to operate. And, um, you know, there, there, there was just no other option. I didn't even consider that, that you could get money and make this easy because uh, <laughs> I didn't have a pass for that.
0: It would have made it a lot easier, but it probably wouldn't have been as much fun half the time.
1: Well, it wouldn't have been as much fun, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, to get where you want to be, owners want to have drivers who can win races. It's a bonus if that driver has some money for sure, but it didn't matter who you spoke to, uh, whether it be Bernie Eccleston or anyone else, they wanted a driver who could win a race. And, um, you know, uh, the, the second I landed in Europe, I, uh, you know, captured a lot of, uh, um, I suppose, attention in the in the motorsport media to uh, uh, be able to, you know, make the car work. Uh, my first trip to Monaco and. uh in 1973, with my um, GRD Formula 3 car, uh, I got a very large write-up in the Le Quip uh, uh, newspaper. It was a bigger write-up than Jackie Stewart got. Uh, yeah,
0: was on- it in French?
1: It was in French, so where I didn't was know what French, It was in French, You had no uh, idea. <laughs> I, could re- I could see my name and I could see uh, <laughs> uh, And that was um, because my first day there, I think I was the fastest Formula 3 car of all the Formula 3 cars. First time I've ever been to Monaco and it was unheard of. And so they gave me a, a very good write-up. And, and that's, if you like, where it started. You know, Get on and you know, don't talk about how good you are. Let the track and the lap times do the talking.
0: You mentioned... Bernie Eccleston, you, you spent a, a few Grand Prix with, with his team, Brabham, when he owned it, but yeah. predominantly you were you're the teams that were, were struggling at Surtees and Amon and, um, and the like. You would have driven some absolute shitboxes surely in that time what was the car that you think oh, i would burn that car it was so bad because there was a few of them that weren't flash
1: oh they were all terrible cars and um <laughs> uh, the, the brabham was fine uh, but again i joined very at the end of the season as a result of um uh, uh, i think it was carlos reutemann uh, left brabham for some political reasons and uh went to ferrari and there was an opening and i had driven for bernie two years before that uh he he loaned me a formula free car and uh so i knew him and he knew me and uh he gave me a go but uh, it was it was still tough because we had no test days in the car i, I lobbed in the car at the canadian grand prix and so on so um it, it was all hard you know hard work and uh I was still then young enough to be a bit faster than I should have been and uh <laughs> you know I I uh, in in the warm up I recall I um uh, I'd never run the tank on f- the car on full tanks of fuel and I've you know in the warm up for the grand prix I've hit the brakes I recall it clearly at the Watkins Glen track and uh the front hit the ground and uh it effectively skidded on the skid plates and and I, I O- overshot the corner and just mildly put it into the catch fence. Uh, it wasn't a big deal, but uh, it was a mistake. And, uh, yeah, but when when I was uh, 110% on the limit all the time, and but it, in, in your sort of CV, it doesn't look that good you put it in the fence. So uh, I didn't start well with Bernie, but it went off... Yeah, you know, uh, good. I moved on then to the, the American Grand Prix and then the Japanese one and I had my own car. And uh, my first day of uh, practice at Fuji, the first time Formula One cars were at Fuji, I was fourth fastest in the first pre- practice session, if I remember rightly. Um and Parche, uh, my teammate, was much further back, and he wanted my car, and I'd have his. And uh, I thought, oh no, don't take my car. I'm, I'm, I like this. I'm, this I'm, is I'm good. hanging in. I'm going to do all right here. And. Yeah, I, I couldn't get his car very right in the time. And, and long story short, I didn't keep my drive into next year because uh, I weren't compatible with the Martini uh, Rossi sponsorship. Uh, they sold nothing in Australia, they
0: said. And You weren't very martini speech. I weren't
1: very Martini-friendly. <laughs> and
0: uh, anyway, which, which is the one that you would have lit on fire if you had one? If we wheeled one in now and said, this is the Formula One car you hated the most, burn that sucker. Which one is it that oh, you because there's a choice. There's, well,
1: it's, it's quite a huge choice. I mean, <laughs> the, the Amon uh, Cosworth-type car, the Surtees um, Cosworth-type car, the – Was it the Boro? The Boro, which was a an a, a Ensign, an English-based team with the Cosworth engine. There was the BRM with the V12. There was the Brabham with the flat 12. um the, the worst one it was, you know, that they were potentially alright. I mean, a Cosworth engine, English constructed car was still alright, but yet they were a team around you that wanted to adjust it to make it into a winner. And that's why certain teams were always winners and some weren't. And I w- weren't necessarily with teams that were winners. And, uh, yeah, the Surtees team was a great disappointment. And, uh, um, yeah, you know, it was just the way the, think the teams ran the show, and I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, the, you know, just design failures, and the, the BRM had shocking design failures on it, and I called, talking to Aubrey Woods, the chief engineer, and that it came out, and I saw it, the radiators, you, they were that small, you wouldn't have put them on a mini-miner. I said, this, this thing won't get out of sight without boiling, and... Yeah, sure enough, we go to Brazil, the first race, and I think it was boiling before I got to the end of the pit lane, and uh, very predictable to an old windmill mechanic like myself, you see, off the farm, and yes, I was quite a a learning experience to find such shocking examples of engineering and uh, standard of some of the mechanics. Uh, I think I had uh, seven or eight races in a row where the engine blew up, and the, the engines blew up uh, in two cases, because there wasn't enough oil in the oil tank.
0: At, They'll do it. At
1: the, at the, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it ran out of oil pressure around the corner. And, uh, you know, just silly things all the time. And that's why I suppose when I finally come back to Australia, I was determined to, I'll run it. And, if it, you yeah, know, only one person to blame then if it doesn't uh, work.
0: I'm looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned about Fuji. And, and that whole race, that Japanese Grand Prix of 76 has been... Um, Put into everybody's minds Partly because of the movie Rush in in more recent years I'm sure you've been asked a lot about it But at the time, did it seem as such a big deal As it's become the the hunt louder thing for the championship Was obviously a big element The movie's put a bit more caro on it all And and given it a bit more juj But at the time, did it feel like this uh, massive moment In in Formula One history Or was it just another race with a a title on the line?
1: No, to us, to to the participants And that was about my, I don't know, 10th race or something Um to go to Japan, where uh, uh, the the culture uh, uh, was just alien to all us European-based teams, and uh, it felt really weird. There was sort of you know you couldn't speak the language as such, whereas right through Europe, uh, the culture of Formula One and the racing was there was a language all by itself, and everyone knew what was going on. But there, we we it seemed like we were the weirdos. You know, <laughs> what are we doing here? Um, but, you know, obviously um, uh, it's, that slowly turned around and, but as you said, that was the very first race in, in, in a Asian-type, uh, or, or Oriental-type country, you know, mm. yeah.
0: And it was also the big TV spectacle at the time because television was yeah, becoming discarding. more mm. of a thing. Mm. There's so many topics, I will skip all over the place because <laughs> there's so much to cover, One of the things that came up very commonly in our questions from our fans is about Peter Jansen and I know you had a a great run with him at Bathurst there for some years when you came back to Australia and you've been asked a million times, there's the stories about throwing the cherry ripes out the door on the warm-up laps and putting dirt on the tyres. What's your favourite Peter Jansen story that perhaps you haven't told or that no one's asked you enough about? I know that you've said previously that he was a far better driver than some people probably gave him, him credit for. Uh, but what's lurking in the LP files on Peter Jansen that you can wheel out for us? Because Sleuth fans love (laughs) Peter Jansen. We must get him on one day.
1: Well, what stood out, I mean, I don't know whether I'd met him before I went to England. I may have met him uh, for sure, but uh, it started uh, his mechanic or did his engine was Ian Tate, you know, the Ian Tate we all know. Ian rang me up one day and said, Jansen's keen to, you know, Run with someone like yourself, would you be interested? And I said, Oh, yeah, why
0: not? So, did you ask for a big, big fee or oh, did you just I, ask for I, a drive? I, I,
1: was, I was never money hungry and I, I wouldn't have asked, I doubt whether I even got paid. But uh, I'd been in England then some many years and uh, I know he was uh, sponsored by Air India and he was going to fly me everywhere uh i think i had a few trips uh, uh, always up the front end of the plane too, like that. and, all right. uh, uh, and i didn't know that even existed till then but um so once i met uh jansen and uh, i stayed at the windsor hotel there in i'd come out from england to do the Sandown and the bathurst in, in one trip if you know what i mean um i got to know jansen very well and um uh over the in the many years we always got on famously well to this very day we've we've never had a, a a blue or such uh never any animosity in anything we ever did and uh i think it was because um we were worlds apart a, as people he and, and i never encroached into his little world and he never encroached into mine uh, you know he did his p r and all that stuff you know massively better than i could even dream of doing it and he let me um you know handle and work on the race cars as I saw fit and uh it was just it was a great time uh, uh you know driving with him working with him uh um as i said that still exists today and uh you know uh, I got married there to uh, Raylene uh, you know uh, J- J- the kids' uh, mother and uh, um that was all great and uh yeah it was yeah, but good times with Jansen. You mentioned the cherry ripe saga. That saga, that was true. We were back in those days. Yeah, you, you must have had a passenger seat still in the race car. And at the start of the, in the morning of the race, you, you did a slow lap around the track in your race car with, you know, um, two of you in the race car, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and he suddenly. Going up the hill, driven right off the bitumen, uh, onto the dirt and the grass and the sticks and the kangaroo crap and everything, throwing cherry ripes out the window to the marshals. I said, I grabbed the steering wheel. I said, get back on the bloody track. We're on our race tires for Christ's sake. (laughs) We're going to be starting the race in you know fifteen minutes. and uh, he he got shocked that uh he didn't realize he was doing anything wrong but uh, it, it didn't never never cause issues on my dad and uh yeah so i had a, a very memorable time with Jansen, here
0: yeah. and still do you still see him which still is still him which uh, is great stuff. quite
1: often i go to his uh uh, his, uh, place, uh, on his Tuesday night drinks there every now and again. And, uh, we reminisce about how good it was in the old days. And, how, good uh, we <laughs> how good we were. How good we were. But you did mention, and I want to say, yeah, he, he never got accolades of being a good driver from other peers of his. I think, I think, pr- my, primarily because there was always a jealousy factor. Uh, and motoring journals tended not to take him seriously, but, in our four baths we did which uh, two seconds and a third uh, and a DNF he never put a foot wrong and uh, uh, always handed the car over to me uh, we never you know he, he would say, "Oh, well, who should start? should you start the race I said, peter, it's your car, your team, nothing wrong with you you do you start the race and uh so we didn 't have any ego issues and uh, I don 't believe his pace as such ever. Was the reason for any of a deficient a deficient result? Uh, he just got on with it, and uh, and for a guy who didn't appear to eat at all and certainly drank a bit, um, <laughs> I thought it was a remarkable effort. It
0: wasn't just Schwepps either, by the way. <laughs> I would have thought. I would have thought. Yeah. Ooh, tell me about the solar car. Uh, one that probably doesn't get covered enough. With no, you, no. but You were heavily involved in putting that together. Just for those who don't know, when was it? Why did you do um, it and what was the whole point? Well, of
1: I, when I finally came back from England, that's in living there, I, I just mentioned Jansen, which was 1977 I did it. I didn't do 78 because I, I don't know, was doing –
0: Busy some, taking over the world. We, or yeah, something.
1: I was doing <laughs> – uh, I think I might have been doing a Formula 2 race or something like that in Europe. So I did 79 and 80 and 81. Um, um. How the, oh, then? I was I was between you know between jobs. I'd come back to uh, Australia to live full time and around about at 1980, uh, and thought, well, what am I going to do now? And um, amongst scratching my head and um, you know doing a bit of nothing and, and you know, a few withdrawal symptoms coming from, you know, yeah you know, I'd placed my whole life on hold to do Formula One and it wasn't going to happen. Um, it was all over. So I was between things and uh, I was talking to Hans uh, Tolstrop at one stage or he was talking to me and he it was just after um, they flew the English tr- Channel with a um, uh, solar-powered... Um, yeah, machine, and hand said, look, can we, we've got to do something with solar power. What can we do? I said, well, what do you mean? Do you want to build a car or drive around Australia? What do you want to do? He said, yeah, that'd be great.
0: <laughs> so you dubbed yourself in, basically. Yeah, so uh, I
1: said, he said, well, could we do that? I said, well, hang on, give us a couple of hours, and I did some... Um uh, bits of numbers on how much power you could get, etc., etc. I said, yeah, we can easily we can build a car and drive across australia if you want um it, it'd be struggling to you know average more than twenty five kilometers an hour but
0: uh but it'll go yeah, yeah
1: so uh, he said, okay, so. We walked into BP and uh, asked them for fifty thousand dollars, and in five minutes' time, they gave us the fifty thousand. And I walked out and said, "Jesus, <laughs> oh, gee, we, did, build it now. we didn't we didn't ask for enough, you know." Um, yeah, so uh, I built the car up at um, uh, um, you know in various places it was, but principally I put it together. My brother Gary uh, helped me on that, and. Um, uh, up at uh, in ringwood that uh, jack godbe here uh, late jack godbear a good old friend of mine i built it in his barn and um oh we tested it out at the army proving ground with simulation of uh, solar cells for drag i didn't have uh, the solar cells were made by a company bp owned and they didn't arrive till we got the vehicle in perth and the boss of bP had and the
0: plan was to go perth Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we
1: drove to, the, the plan was to yeah, go um, Melbourne, to, uh, Perth to Sydney and the, the, all the others around were stressing that it, how do you know it'll work? You know, I said, I was, freaking, you know, I was good at maths at school, <laughs> which is true actually. Uh, it'll work and um, yeah, so the solar cells arrived, we put them on over there and uh, it worked.
0: So how many days does it take to drive a solar-powered car that's got a top speed of what, 25 k's an hour... From Perth to Sydney. that You'd grow a fair beard in that time,
1: wouldn't you? <laughs> when I say, yeah, uh, I think it was the average of tw- 25 we did. It had a top speed about? down some of the hills. I know we were up around 70 or 80K. It was a bit scary, I might add. Narrow uh,
0: tyres, I guess, as well. Yeah,
1: they were on uh, nice little high-speed Michelin pushbike tyres. But um, we, I think uh, Hans did the logistics of the planning and, uh, and, and so what on. was what
0: was his background for those who maybe Hans, don't know and Hans Solstrop?
1: Solstrop I don't know what his CV said, but he's a he's a, uh, I think he's a Dutchman who came out to Australia to get, to you know flee the country of socialism and everything because he's a he's a can do. He just wants to do things. He doesn't want a handout from anyone. Who wants to do things, so he's a doer. He, some people call him an adventurer. Uh, that that may be uh, right. Uh, you know, he'd wake up one morning and want to walk across the Simpson Desert, and he'd do it. He he wouldn't. Uh, uh, yeah, procrastinate. So uh, that was his background and, um, um, you know, he he had planned the trip to take, I think, around 24 days and we ended up in Sydney after 15 days. So we were about eight days faster than he had thought. So that was a, a success, if you know what I mean. And uh, we then had planned to donate the uh, vehicle to the Australian National Museum and... Um, uh, which was a great pity because so I got a call one night in the middle of the night from the company. They said, the Smithsonian Institute. I said, the Smithsonian, are you sure that's who you are? And he said, yeah, we'd like to buy the, ve- the vehicle. I said, well, I can't do. It's already gone. <laughs> so not many people in the world get a call from the Smithsonian no, Institute. I think you're the first person <laughs> on our podcast to get a call from them. Uh, yeah, so anyway, that was, so it was a fill-in job. Simple mm. as that. That's why I did that.
0: It filled in quite nicely because then the next little chapter delivered three Bathurst wins in a row with <laughs> Brock and the dealer team. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Redjo to Oil tool. Simply type in your Redjo, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So, what's your car best suited to? Just search Redjo the number two and oil and find out tell me now i've never heard the straight story on this this is your chance to tell it right there was a yarn that popped up in the paper and in the media in the mid-80s about a hdt commodore that was speeding across town and there was all sorts of accusations and things can you straighten out all that story because it's taken (laughs) on a whole new thing over what 30 odd (laughs) years as to who did what, where, why and how and to what level and it's not quite at O.J. Simpson chase levels <laughs> but can you straighten out the story on what happened there or what didn't happen there or what people are saying is incorrect about all I, that?
1: I recall uh, a Sunday morning I've walked in to fill up, uh, yeah, fill my petrol, car up with petrol and i walked in to pay it and they, I think they had the Truth newspaper around then and the newspapers were sitting on the... Um, counter and
0: And we're talking mid 80s here aren't we
1: yeah and uh, whatever the newspaper was it had my photo full-blown photo on the front page my head saying was this the guy the police were chasing and i looked at it and thought jesus uh, (laughs) i'm not sure i'm not sure i don't know much about this and um, uh, so i read that with interest and over the next uh, nine months i constantly had the police knocking on my door at home and everywhere else saying we know it was you. We've chased you everywhere that many times. And I'm saying, hey, guys, there's something wrong here. Long story short, I went to court and uh, they had 13 witnesses who recognised me as the driver of the vehicle the police of were a, chasing.
0: Of a, a road car, HDT-spec HDT Commodore.
1: Well, it was a road car. And uh, they recognised me because of my moustache. And uh the court had, yeah, uh, you know, they were presenting l- large, you know, uh, Tim Pemberton posters up, uh you know, with me and Bob Hawke and Peter Brock on the uh, the podium at Bathurst, the podium yeah. and at Tim Bathurst. Pemberton, the, the long-time yeah.
0: Holden PR guy, yeah, yeah
1: with um, my moustache. Now, I, I said to my lawyer, but I didn't have a moustache, and uh, he said, well, "Can you prove it?" I said, "Well, of course I can." I said, "My daughter was born." Um, two weeks before the alleged chase, and I've got 10,000 photos of me holding my first uh, child, Nicola, my daughter, and no Mr. Ash. And that went, those photos co- covered the whole, you know, month, first month, yeah. So we go to court, and, uh, uh, I, uh eventually I produced the photos because I was giving evidence, and uh, the judge says, well, when were the photos taken? So, I turned him over. To, he said, no, don't turn him over. Tell me. I said, oh, 1983. Um, he said, well, the case was 1984. Oh, I said, well, I meant to say 84, which I'd made an error. Now, I wouldn't be the first ma- male father to not know when his daughter was born. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he said no no you said what you said and, and i could not believe it i was convicted then uh on all, all the evidence was uh, false evidence but i was convicted <laughs> so so that's the story and that's the story that is the truth uh and that's as far as i'm going to say
0: righto oh. <laughs> fair enough now we got you further than i think most other people have so there you go uh One other thing that springs into my mind, Will Dale, who works with us at V8 Sleuth, he is manning the audio as we speak here, has a great uh, view of history, and he delves through the things that I forget sometimes. One of the things that actually popped up in one of our questions was a fan asked if you ever had the tendency to want to have a go at the Thunderdome, at Oscar racing, and you were supposed to but a world-famous figure skater smashed the crap out of your car. So Torvald and Dean were the massive stars of the 80s of ice skating and the Winter Olympics, and Christopher Dean was a bit of a fan of car racing. How did it come to be that he was driving a, a Perkins Engineering Commodore at the Thunderdome and walloped it? so you couldn't actually take part in Correct. the race
1: uh i'm not exactly sure how we if you like got connected uh probably something that was
0: you, because you're me. a big ice skating fan LP. Uh, yeah
1: maybe because i'm a big ice skating fan <laughs> like not um yeah uh, we had the car prepared to do thunder i mean he I don't know. It must have been going to do. I don't know whether it was a demonstration or a race before the race or whatever. I think that's
0: what the plan was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And long story short, he was a decent guy. I got on well with him, and he's uh, offside uh, uh, what's What turn was it?
0: Jane uh, Torval. Was, yeah. She, yeah. was she was she there to go? Tor, Tor, she, she could,
1: well, it was Torval and Dean. Yeah, I, I never Jane know Torval. Which, okay. Christopher okay. Dean, Jane Torval. Yeah. She yeah. was. She was. She was perfectly sensible, and um, we met. them. he crashes the car, and. Uh, he ends up in hospital and uh, and so on. And, uh, yeah, but the car was very much in hospital as well, so I didn't get to do the drive. But uh, that was my first and last go at anything to do with uh, ice skating or the Thunderdome yeah. or uh, <laughs> <laughs> anything like that.
0: Very short, sharp that chapter was, of the LP yeah. racing career. Uh, the Lotus Esprit, that's one people have forgotten. The Bathurst 12-hour, yeah. you didn't do too many 12-hours. I think that's the only that's one you might have done. I, how how did that come to be? Because it was a very... Thinking back, we connect you to Formula One, to Holden primarily, one little dirty run in a Ford Mustang with a certain Queensland bloke that we won't go into for the Holden fans. But how did you end up in a Lotus? It's one of those oddities.
1: Well, I I must admit I'm not exactly sure uh, how I ended up, but a good friend of mine was Ron Barnicle. Um, uh, And Ron, Ron, uh, I think, was probably um, – he was a bit more connected to – that world that I was, and he, I think he was started, would I, you know, would I want to do the 12-hour with him? I said, oh, yeah, why not? And uh, the uh, importers of the, that Lotus I knew from long time back, and I thought, oh, yeah, this we be right. Uh And um, I was very pleased to do it. We, we were running around uh, in the race. We were uh, relatively competitive. I think I'm, you got polled did, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I, did I, 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 I think got the, I got yeah. this feeling we had pole. Uh, and, Go with um, it anyway. It's yeah, we'll, we'll live with that. <laughs> and um, th- that's effectively how I uh, met and not met, but uh, signed up Greg Hansard because mm. he was driving some other machinery. You and know, I recall following him. It's, it's a
0: Mazda, you can say it, was I it, know. Was, was it a Mazda? Uh, RX7 I don't know. Mazda. I thought you were avoiding it because you just didn't <laughs> no, want to mention the name. I don't, don't name.
1: care about that. <laughs> I remember following him uh, closely for many, many laps and uh um because i i was aware that it was a 12-hour race and he, yeah you didn't have to pass the guy and win in the first corner uh so he and he was yeah his pace was very very good and i thought i'll just follow him from see how it goes and uh over those many many laps um he never ever made a mistake. Uh, his line, you know, the first lap was the same as his last lap, etc. cetera. And when I finished uh, my stint or that meeting uh, finished, uh, eventually the Lotus failed, the back broke, brake smoked up or something and it didn't, didn't finish. But I immediately uh, contacted Greg and asked him, you know, what's he doing at Bathurst? Because I've got a seat for him whenever he wants it. And that's how I met the uh, dear old greg and uh um yeah the rest is history on that unfortunately yeah.
0: well, it worked out good that year though because it worked out got, very good. went back to bath six months later and Correct, won yes. the race and now the car's being restored which is Correct. how we started our podcast Correct. what are the ones that our fans love is the vl the the fuel injected Walkenshaw vl group a commodore and I think if I'm right, that 1990, well, it did a couple of years, that car, and it was wide, it was red, and then it was the Bob Jane T-Marts car that won the Sandown 500. Is That, that car's in your workshop, is it not?
1: It was in our workshop. It's owned uh, by, uh, I think it's owned by a Sydney guy, Dave Gardner, if I, I hope I've got that right. Uh, uh, he brought it down for some uh, uh, mechanical work, et cetera. It sat in our workshop for two or three months there, I know, and uh, Jack and uh, Travis Langman worked on it and uh, did various things. It wasn't um, the, the extensive job that I've done on our own because he he you know didn't want that if you mm. if you know what I mean. And uh, but yeah, that, that was we we had those that uh, model humming pretty good because that was the rules again suited some elements of what we were doing. That that was a stage of free engine revs. You could run to eight and a half thousand, which. As all the cylinder block would take on the um, uh, Holden, and you'd start breaking our rear main bearings and things like that. And that's why when we, um, it led to the 93 uh, engines and blocks that I made the, with the fuel injection, um, you know, we we'd had great uh, support from Holden, from Holden Engine shop and the management to do what we wanted to do but we didn't have great any support from the uh, marketing side where all the dollars were they didn't like me um, taking the Castro money from the race from the factory race team so I was frozen out but um, uh, a a good little era there where a lot of hands-on work from myself and our small team we were able to think a bit outside the bubble use the rule book uh, to our advantage and um, weren't just going to go and copy someone
0: because that VL by 92 the last year, actually you raced that into 93 before you got your your VP ready. So that model of car actually came on the scene in 88. So it had a really long period of time in which time you'd gone to VNs with Brock coming along and doing a year with the mobile thing. Then that all finished and you went back to your old VL. So it was like this trusty old steed that just kept on... Keeping on, I don't know how you kept finding ways to. What did you do to it to make it keep on performing up against the Sierras and the skylines and the BMWs that were all either highly horsepowered or highly tired? Because the Commodore was kind of deficient in most of the areas on paper.
1: You're yeah, right, and uh, it was, but it was under those Group A rules of your remember favourite, rightly. your uh, favourite era, a shocking era of <laughs> motorsport. Uh, Group A run by a bunch of uh, Frenchmen who are all corrupt, in my view, uh, aided and abetted by equally incompetent uh, people that used to work for cams.
0: I was We've got – how many minutes, <laughs> Will, have we got in before Larry's given cams one? Well, they're not cams anymore. They're Motorsport well, Australia, so it doesn't count. Does
1: yeah, <laughs> they've always uh, – I've asked many people who are so-called friends of cams, give me a list of the good things cams have done, and I end up with a blank paper. Um um, but anyway, that's not the individuals, that's just the big picture. There's a lot of good individuals in CAMS, I might add, who really mean well and work hard. But, you know, sometimes I really question the whole vision of CAMS.
0: Well, we didn't <laughs> even get onto that one. Um, one thing that popped up too, Marcus Ambrose was supposed to test for you.
1: Do you remember that? No.
0: Yeah, He talked about it on a podcast with our good oh, friend really? Greg Russ that he, he was going to have a test and then he had to sheepishly can it because he'd gone and done a deal with the Stone Brothers. Oh, so. yeah, I do remember something about yeah. that. <coughs> History me. could have been very different.
1: Well, they could have been. Um, yeah, it could have been, but, look, they didn't. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we were getting, uh, because I I, hadn't, I knew Marcus's um, uh Dad from England, uh, uh, Ross Ambrose, who was very big in Formula Fords, uh, Van Diemen. Van Diemen. He was a partner in the Van Diemen company, and um, so I knew all about him. And uh, I thought to myself, anyone who's had a go over there will always be good, you know. And uh, I know we had some talks, and I just weren't quite sure why it fizzled out. any talks I ever had with drivers fizzled out pretty quick when I offered them the wage I was offering. And, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's the way it is.
0: Who, dro- who drove the hardest bargain? I mean, you didn't have lots of, when you went to two cars, so you had Russell Ingle, Steve Richards came along a bit later, Port Umbrell was with you for a, a time. Who drove the hardest bargain out of anyone that you had to do the deal with to come and drive for you? Surely it was Russell. Well, Surely, no,
1: Russell. no, no. Russell, uh, Russell's uh, view on life is he wanted always more than I want, wanted to pay him, and that, that I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, but but that was out in the open. He knew, you know, we knew that, and eventually, you know, he moved on. and That's fine. Um, that there was an error there after about the time I retired from driving that you know, the teams were all whinging about how much it cost, but those very teams were all then paying their drivers ridiculous amounts of money. And um, I, I, I had uh, sponsors who were saying to me, well, we'll sponsor you, uh, but, you know, you've got to have what's called a top-line driver, and they were costing between six hundred and nine hundred thousand and 900000 a year. Uh, and I recall um, talking to... Some of them, I won't
0: mention those. Come on now, it's, too, it's so I long said, ago it doesn't
1: matter. I said, look, I'll pay you a million bucks a year and there's 15 races and you've got to guarantee me 15 wins. And quickly the driver said, oh, no, that's not fair. Said, now,
0: you Ooh. said driver then, so you must have only had this <laughs> chat with one.
1: I said, Who were uh, you trying to lure? <laughs> no, I, I did have a driver. He wanted to maintain a, a high wage. And I said, well, you've you got to do things for me as well. I mean, I'll pay you, but you better win, win some races. And each time you don't win, we'll, we'll nip some yeah. <laughs> They weren't too keen on that discussion. Funny that. Discussion. Yeah, funny that, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Was there anyone you had serious chats with along the way in your, your V8 team to come and drive for you or to get involved that perhaps it, it didn't pan out? Or did you always get no. the guy that you wanted?
1: Oh, uh, well, in those later years, money then started dictating who I could afford. And... um I recall, of, for instance, after I retired, uh, i had run Jack, my son, and Shane Price in the DVS, and I rang up Jack Daniels and I rang up Holden. I said, look, I want to save myself one and a half million a year. Can I uh, uh, hire two, you know, development series drivers? They're young, they're, they're, you know? And both sponsors said, absolutely go for it. So I just saved that much money. It wasn't funny. And I, I recall Ross Stone... Uh, Ringing me after I had hired the, my you know my fifty dollar an hour fifty dollar a year folks. Ross said, "Well, I wish I had the balls to do that, you <laughs> know, uh, because you know anyway, that's what happens, and uh, it, it didn't work out unfortunately for them for various reasons, and um, uh, 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 but that's how life is, you know.
0: Yeah. When you stopped with the race team and that all wound up, and the Kelly sort of kind of." took over what Mm. there was Jack had a a drive there and bits and pieces did you go cold turkey on the car racing thing for a while because it was just time to do some other things or did you keep a an interest all the way through. Oh no!
1: I, I, once I stopped driving, uh, to me, it was, uh, a it was a, an easy decision because some of the f- biggest decisions are very easy. You know, I, I'd always said to myself and my team that the moment I become a weak link in the team, I've got to you look at myself like I'd look at anyone else, and uh, I'd, I'd made that mistake uh, uh, in the in 2003 race, my last Bathurst in practice. Uh, I, I ploughed into the wall while I was arguing with Joe, my team manager who wanted me to come in and sign a letter of indemnity to indemnify cams and VA supercars against negligence and I was refusing to do that and so um uh, I, weren't, I weren't arguing with Joe. Joe was saying, "Hey, mm. uh, they're going to black flag you and they might fine you, etc., etc." So it, I was totally out of concentration mode. That's why I had that crash. And um, um, yeah, and then I, I was, you know, starting to not be on the front row of the grid how I in some earlier years would have been. So I thought, "Hang on, time to pack it up." So that's why I backed out. Um, but um, no, no, I forget what the question was there. What was it?
0: <laughs> you made me forget it there too. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we, we talked about maintaining your interest in the sport when you, uh, yeah, you no. sold the team. And-
1: no, so when I uh, then sold out the Kelly's, et cetera, once I was out of racing, I was out of racing and I very quickly have had moved on to do other things i mean i've always watched it on tv uh but not every second and every lap of it so nothing's altered in that even of today i'll i'll watch i'll miss the odd uh, race if i'm doing something else like i don't make it a priority but uh i haven't if you like turned my back on it i just my part's out i'm i'm over i'm you know like the cricket man he's out go back and sit in the pavilion. do yeah. your own thing you know <laughs> let someone else do it <laughs>
0: That's part one of our chat with Larry Perkins on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Stay tuned for part two, where we ask him your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions. We talk about his decision to start his own touring car team, his three Bathurst 1000 victories under his own banner, the all-female Castrol Cougars program, and the V8 Sleuth Top 10 shootout as well, where Larry comes out with a few ripping answers. There's also a fair bit of LP in our latest book, Project too, which is now available to pre-order in the V8 Sleuth online store. Racing the Lion is a 400-page illustrated history of Holden in Australian motorsport. It's our dip of our lid to the general and its rich history in our sport. To get your copy, jump on our website, v 8 click on the store link, and you can guarantee you'll get a copy of this limited edition release when it comes out later this year. Now, if you're enjoying our podcast, make sure to leave us a review to help spread the word. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss episodes as they're released. And there'll be plenty more of them this year too. We will be releasing an episode every single week during the 2020 supercar season. If you haven't been to our website recently, we've given it a birthday and a new livery. Check it out at v8sleuth.com.au. And as always, keep an eye on our social pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Podcast, powered by Timken.